The Folklore Podcast remains free to listen to thanks to our Patreon supporters. Without them, the show would not continue. To join them from as little as a dollar a month and get access to Folklore audiobook partworks and other additional content, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Your support during this difficult time is helping to secure the future of the podcast. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today's episode is the final recording that was able to be made face-to-face before everyone's lives changed as a result of the current pandemic. Of course, we continue to schedule online interviews and are looking at other events to keep people connected, as well as more bonus content on the podcast feed. Do make sure you follow our Twitter and Facebook accounts to get links to additional content as soon as it is released. This interview was recorded by podcast volunteer Joanna Veranda, who met up with hedge druid Stephen G. Ray in his home in Ulverston in the Lake District. Stephen is better known to many on Twitter as the Bard of Cumberland. During the course of the conversation, Stephen and Joanna explore such diverse topics as Cumberland and Tibetan folklore, the Yeti, Boggarts, and an exploration of Druidism and being a bard. I hope you'll find that there's something to interest everyone in here, as well as a couple of folk stories for flavour. How did you become interested in folklore, and what areas particularly appealed to you? Well, I think it's genetic. I think my interest in folklore actually was passed to me in the womb. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was born in Ayrshire and I uh, I grew up in Alloway. And Alloway is the birthplace of Robert Burns, who's a very famous Scottish poet and, I would say, folklorist. Uh, My grandfather, when he retired from farming, uh, took a job gardening at um, Dunholm Estate in Alloway. And Dunholm Estate is where... Robert Burns' father, William Burness, worked. And my grandfather was president of uh, Alloway Burns Club. And I was educated at Alloway Primary School, so we always had to learn Burns poetry, etc., etc. And the Ray family, um, we farmed from about the 1700s, we farmed along the Ayrshire coast. So my grandfather would tell me tales from the Ayrshire about you know, the coastline in Ayrshire's full of amazing folklore of uh, the the sea people and sea witches mm. and that type of thing. So it's sort of, I've always had folklore in my life, really. So it's, I think that's really kind of where it's come from. So um, 
so the family were uh, there was always folk tales and bits of history, and I was fan fascinated with history. Um, and every year we'd we'd all pack our bags and pack the cars and drive down to Lake District for our holidays. So right. I very um, was very much aware of like the local tales and folklore of the Lake District from a very young age as well. So. So I suppose I've got a bit, there's a bit of Ayrshire folklore and a bit of uh, folklore from Cumbria. Right, and you describe yourself as the Bard of Cumberland, and what do you mean by that? Well, I studied as a Bard with the Order of Bards of Eights and Druids, and the Bards are sort of the keepers of tradition, the storytellers, the repository of the history and culture of the tribe. So I suppose my thought, my Twitter followers and my Facebook followers, they're sort of my tribe. They're mm. people that are interested in like the folklore of Cumbria. Um so um yes, so so my my followers are my tribe. Um interesting enough, the name Ray is actually a very ancient Cumberland name. Mm. Um, so it comes from the parish of Bromfield um, and it effectively means the one who follows the deer so people with a surname Roe or people with a surname Ray or all the deviations from Ray they, they're, it's, the same, it's the same name effectively so there's lots of Rays in Dumfrieshire and there's lots of Rays in Ayrshire and I would suggest that they're from the, the, the Cumberland originate from Cum Cumberland. Mm. Uh, probably the Rays up in the north of Scotland would associate themselves with Clan Macrae oh. and they would associate them as like a Scottish name. Whereas for myself I would say definitely like within Lowland Scotland we're probably associated more with this very ancient Cumberland name. Mm. So I suppose the Bard of Cumberland is the my my Bardic background as as a Bard, as a Druid uh, but uh, Cumberland is sort of my ancestral home. Is this area, uh, Lake District in Cumbria, particularly rich for folklore? And um, what kind of folklore can we find that in in here that is more widespread? Um, I think wherever you have people, you have stories. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Lake District. Cumbria itself is a very ancient part of the very ancient Celtic kingdom of Strathclyde. So Cumbria's like everywhere else, there's it's it's stuffed full of folklore and ghost stories and etc etc. Um I think probably prevalent here we've got the stories of the boggarts. Yeah. And we've got quite a kind of interesting quite a, a number of vampire stories as well. Oh, <laughs> um, so I think I'm on. Uh, at the moment, I'm probably up to about four vampire tales that I've researched. Yeah. But there's lots of tales of boggarts, which is they're a kind of malevolent spirit that can appear in the form of a of a human, or actually can appear appear in the form of an animal. Um, and the household boggarts, I think, was probably where J.K. Rowling got her yeah. inspiration for Dobby the House Elf. Yeah. Although Dobby the House Elf and Harry Potter is, I think, he's quite a. Yeah, I'm not into Harry Potter, but um, it's probably a quite a um, 
a pleasant individual, although maybe have a a few psychological problems. (laughs) Um, Whereas actually um, the the boggles, the dobbies within Cumbrian folklore are generally quite malevolent and uh, involved in like uh, child abduction and etc etc. So they're not very pleasant individuals. So so we've got lots of boggarts, boggarts, dobbies, whatever name you want to give them, and quite an interesting number of vampires. Yeah, I did see something on Twitter that you were preparing some research for vampires. Yes, the vampire of Cockermouth. Yeah, that's it. Yes, <laughs> yes. So that's yeah. So I'm sort of. Um, I think I've got it to. I think in fact. I think I might have tweeted it today, actually. My, my, oh, I think it's on it, yeah. Twitter today. <laughs> um, my, obviously, because it's quite interesting, because of course, generally my folk tales, I have to, um, everything sort of compressed into yeah. a tweet. 150 <laughs> characters or less. Yes, exactly. So you're getting the folklore of Cumbria within one tweet. Because actually, if you do more than one tweet, actually, people sort of lose interest. Yeah. So um, it's the folklore of Cumbria in a tweet, basically. Uh, with with an image of some kind, mm-hmm. so um, yes, yeah, so I've uh, I think I've finished my research of the the vampire of Cockermouth, which is actually technically the vampire of Seton. Right. I can tell. Would you like to hear? Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> I can. So, sometime in the seventeen fifties, two men were returning home from work when they heard the most terrifying screams coming from a nearby farmhouse. Entering the property, they witnessed a young girl being attacked by a strange-looking man with fangs for teeth and blood dripping down from his gaping mouth. On challenging this strange man, he fled towards the village of Seton. The young girl was taken to a local tavern where the owner's wife dressed the wounds and calmed her nerves with liquor. As the tale was recounted to the customers, a shocked blacksmith suggested his wife had been quite attacked quite recently in a similar way. An angry mob gathered and they set out to the village of Seton. Passing the old cemetery, they discovered many graves had been disturbed, but one coffin intact, and it emitted terrifying sounds. The coffin lid was removed and the strange man was dragged out and nailed to a nearby tree and set alight. So there ended the vampire of Seton. It's said the nail to used to pin the vampire to the tree is still visible, but those who try to remove it burn their hands. So that's one of the vampires. So we've got all these strange pieces of vampire folklore from the area. So we've also got the vampire of Croglin Grange, the vampire of Dent, and the natives of Renwick are also known as bats due to the monstrous creature said to have flown out of the foundations of the church. So that's four four vampire stories in Cumbria, which well, is... That's very interesting because one of the questions I had afterwards was to ask you, um, what is the spirit of place like in Cumbria? And it sounds like a very evil spirit of place, isn't it? <laughs> eh, it's just a fascinating. It's just fascinating. You kind of think, how on earth did, did these folk tales develop? You know, uh, 
I'm not entirely convinced there are such a thing as vampires, but uh, how did it originate? What part in history, what was going on historically that um, these tales developed from? Because they all sort of developed around about the 1700s. So what was going on perhaps politically and culturally in the area that these tales that uh, we we suddenly had vampire myths? So like the red caps emerged in Scotland, we have vampires emerging in Cumbria. Exactly, All very blood-related, isn't it? Yes, yes. So I find that fascinating, but that's a subject in its own right, and I think possibly my head would explode if... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if uh, if uh, delved any deeper into the kind of historical side as well, I think there's only so much so much you can take in. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about my more positive traditions and customs <laughs> from the Lakes District. <laughs> um, are there any especially interesting traditions and customs from the Lakes? Well, I've I've chosen two which um, I particularly like. Um, uh, I think because they're nature related. So there's one called Telling the Bees. So Which is I think the title of Mark's new book. <laughs> it could be, it could be, yes, uh, yes. Um the, that may have had something to do with it, I must I must confess, yes. Uh, so if it's not in his book, perhaps um I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> but that could be in the next edition, I suppose. Um so when a death occurred in a Cumbrian household there was the custom of telling the bees. The hives were gently tapped and the bees were informed as to who had died. To reassure them further, crumbs of food from the funeral feast were left outside the hives for the bees to partake. Unless these formalities were observed, the bees might swarm. Mm. Um, another piece was it's actually it's more a bit of superstition it's magpie superstition so of course we see magpies yes. but one magpie two three etc etc yep. um, we have we have a certain verse we recite and of course that I suppose that was made quite famous by the unthanks I don't know if you, have you heard For of the them what, the unthanks they're a kind of like a, a folklore group they, they sing sing folklore mm. But this is actually a Cumbrian version. Right. I know the Cornish one. (laughs) Right. Well, this is the Cumbrian one. So it's one is for sorrow, but two is for mirth. Three's for a wedding. Four for a death. Five for heaven. Six for hell. But seven's the devil's own cell. So I'm sorry, we'll get back into devils and that type of thing again. So sorry, become macabre and death. Sorry, I've talked too much about no death. No one will want to come to Cumbria after this. <laughs> Cumbria is lovely. Everybody should come. <laughs> well, within reason. So yeah, so that that was two that I thought were quite interesting. Mm. What about um, the the lakes themselves? I think I, I've uh, heard a story that there's also a lady of the lake here somewhere. Is that true? <laughs> Um, what you mean our own Arthurian legend? Yes. <laughs> well, apparently, um, Bassenthwaite Lake is apparently where um, Excalibur was taken in um, Arthur's death. 
Um, I think the historical author, I think possibly I read somewhere that um, I think the family was connected to the Roman garrison at Hadrian's Wall. So whether actually he was a Roman by birth or it was a Celtic family associated with with the Rome. But the problem is, of course, everywhere's got an Arthurian legend. You know, where I come from in uh, in Ayrshire, um, Dunure Castle, which is quite near I grew up, it was apparently Camelot. And it's got an Arthurian legend, of course. But then uh, there's um, quite a famous book written and that... Um, and it's there's a place in the borders, kind of Selkirk way, I think, that they reckon there's a place there was Camelot. So everywhere's got an Arthurian legend, but apparently the raid, but um, if the the Lady of the Lake um, and the the Cumbrian version, she she lives in Bassenthwaite Lake. Very interesting. So why do you think there has been such a renewed interest in folklore in the last couple of years? Possibly two reasons. Um, I think the Folklore Thursday hashtag on Twitter, uh, which has become a bit of a global phenomenon, which is uh, one of my favourite days of the week now. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably hats off to Dee Dee Cheney and the members of her group that established it. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably, I think, so the rise of social media in general has made it easier for people to access folk tales, mm. um, especially those specific maybe to their cultural identity or, or where they live, you know, if you've, um, etc. Um, perhaps also as people move away from religion, um, there's more interest to discover, like, the kind of traditions of old. Um, you kind of um, the kind of Celtic traditions, Celtic shamanism. If we're taking, you know, maybe this area, and I think with Celtic shamanism, um, within that, that you know, folk tales exist. You know, tales exist within it. So, I think possibly these reasons. Folklore Thursday certainly has sparked some more hashtags now. I don't know if you've actually noticed yes. that there is Mythology Monday, yes. Fairy Tale Tuesday. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, Witchy Wednesday. Witch Wednesday. Witch Wednesday, yes. I saw a, t- a tweet this week where they were actually trying to create Weird Wednesday, as in the right. deadly spirits, the weirds. Oh, right, okay, yeah. yes. And uh-huh. then... I suggested doing Superstition Friday because of Friday yes. the 13th. And, um, because it really should be Folklore Friday, shouldn't it? Or F's, to get our F's right, isn't it? Yeah. Folklore Friday. <laughs> yes. Mythology Monday. Yeah. Well, yes. Not that I'm suggesting we change it, of course. Yes. And and then I forgot what the Saturday one was. Oh. Um, but pers- Satanic Saturday Maybe, could, yeah, that would be funny And then resting on Sunday so that you can go to church But obviously the church where you go is quite questionable If you're into folklore yes. and superstition all week Yes, I, I suggest it's not one made of bricks with a cross in it 
Well, um, now we would like to move on to druidry because I think this is actually the first time that we're talking about druidry on the Folklore Podcast. So we'd be very interested in you telling us a bit about what druidry is, about your druidic path, and if it has brought any benefit into your life and work. So about druidry, yeah. Sometimes I think it chose me, I didn't choose it. <laughs> uh, where does one start? Um, because I'm not actually sure if there's actually an agreed understanding of who the Druids were and where they came from. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a, a number of books on Druidry and I think everybody's got their own ideas. I think possibly the most favoured idea about druids is it was a shamanistic or animistic religion the Celts brought with them as they migrated into Western Europe and into the British Isles and Ireland around the 4th century BCE so like a priestly caste of Celtic society however um, you know the people that built the great stone circles they built them perhaps maybe up to 2000 years earlier so and the people that built these stone circles must have had a you know this this astrological knowledge um and i suppose i deviate there because for me i think we then need to look at the work of graham hancock mm-hmm. You know whose whose idea is that advanced civilizations were lost at the last ice age, or even the research of Michael Cremo. You know his book Forbidden Archaeology suggests that people like ourselves existed millions of years ago. Mm. But I suppose we could really go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> um, the Greek explorer uh, Pythias records meeting Druids when he sailed round Britain in about 300 BCE. He records that the Druids spoke Greek and their customs were very similar to that of Pythagoreanism. So Pythagoreanism um, came from Pythagoras, which I I just tend to call him the the, the triangle guy. (laughs) (laughs) The guy with the triangles that we had to learn at school. But Pythagoreanism sort of originated from the 6th century uh, BCE and they were vegetarians. They believed a man's soul was diminished if he killed an animal. Uh, They also believed in the transmission of souls, that every soul is immortal and upon death enters into a new body. Curiously, this was happening around the same time that... uh, Buddha was teaching reincarnation in India. So it suggests at this point, 6th century BCE, there was this confluence of knowledge, mm-hmm. which is, I would suggest, earlier than actually the Celts were in Britain, mm-hmm. which would perhaps suggest that the Druids didn't come with the Celts and were there before, mm-hmm. but that's just my suggestion. I am, um, and I, I, I think because uh, Druidism was like an uh, an oral tradition. Nothing, you know, nothing was written down, so we don't know anything about the Druids. Mm-hmm. We can perhaps just suggest we can look at history um, 
we can't look at the writings of the Romans because the Romans, obviously, you know, the Romans killed all the Druids. They sort of her- herded them into Anglesey and murdered them and burnt down all their oak groves. Mm. So we can't really look at the Roman accounts of what Druids were because they were obviously, you know, they, they didn't for the... They did for the Druids because they wanted to supplant their own gods yeah. and didn't want the kind of Celtic the, the gods, the, the, the Druidic gods. And the history is always written by the victors, so obviously they whatever they wrote about the Druids yes. must seem to be some sort of... Um, just from a different perspective, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So... So I think we can actually probably uh, look at uh, the records of Pythias, you know, who was, who had a look, who sailed around Britain, you know, probably about, what, about 300 years before the Romans came. So, and he, you know, he's saying, like, you know, the Romans spoke, the Druids spoke Greek, um, and they would similar customs. So, yeah, so the, there's, uh, um, there's a very good book that I've got somewhere. Um, I think it's called, um, I'll need to look for it, I think it's maybe Singing with Blackbirds, I think it's called. And it's written by a chap in Ayrshire, funnily enough. And uh, he's been looking at the, the, the Gaelic songs, so the songs from the north of Scotland, the Gaelic speaking. And he'd dissected the songs and found, like... There's a bit about druidism in them, so there's aspects of perhaps druidic culture that still exists within Gaelic songs. That's mm-hmm. a fascinating book. Um, so, who were the druids? Not entirely sure. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, uh, with um, with studying druidry with with Obod, uh, order of bards, of and druids, you know, there's the um, with with studying within that there are. There's pizza, pieces of historical um, knowledge, etc., etc. So. Yeah, I've done the course as well, actually. Right? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it is a minefield, isn't it? Because yeah. you, nobody can really say. Yeah, but even uh, when you're doing the course, uh, there are some bits where they say uh, this was written in the 18th century, and oh, yeah. although it sounds beautiful, we're yeah. not sure it's 100 percent correct. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yes. So, you know, because like, modern druidry was effectively developed by Gerald Gardner and Ross Nichols mm-hmm. in the 1940s, 1950s. And they came up with the eight great festivals that we now celebrate, yeah. etc. Um, so, yeah, so nobody really knows, but people sort of piece together parts of history and look how what was going on in, in other places and think, all right, the druids maybe came with the Celts, but, you know, who built the stone circles, um, and, uh, you know, this Greek explorer said he met the Druids, you know, perhaps before the Druids were actually historically meant to have arrived with the Celts in Britain. So, yeah, so... And how... mm -hmm. Sorry, Sorry. how how has this all um, influenced uh, your own path in life? Um, Earlier off the... Off record, you mentioned that um, you were interested in Buddhism at first, um, and then you did the Obot course before <laughs> or after you were interested in Buddhism? Um, I was given a copy of the Celtic Shaman by John Matthews in 1996. Hmm. So my my background, um, 
you know, was very much, um, uh, uh, I was, I did a degree in botany, but I'd come from a kind of agricultural, horticultural background, did my degree in botany, um, and ended up working for a, for a plant breeding company based in Lincolnshire. Mm. Um, and, uh, but I moved, when I moved to Lockerbie in 1996, um, uh, my next door neighbour actually just appeared at the fence one day and handed me this copy of the Celtic Shaman. Read this, oh. I think you'll really like it. Okay. <laughs> um, so I read that a numerous times and then actually uh, read the book of Druidry by Ross Nichols. Yeah. And I think my kind of interest developed from there. Uh, and I think at that time, I identified myself as a druid, but in 2000 I went to work in Pakistan, the year before 9-11, it was quite an interesting time, um, and uh, at night I would sit uh, with just a group of men from the village uh, I live, lived at, and they would read poetry by Rumi, you know, the great yeah. Sufi, the great Sufi yeah. poet. They would read it in Urdu and I would read it in English because my Urdu is terrible. <laughs> um, and actually, so the year after, I was actually working in Zambia. And uh, I was l- working in Zambia in literally the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And I think I had uh, I'd taken some books with me to read. One of them was on ecolo- ecological terrorism, <laughs> of all things. <laughs> which was a kind of rather strange read and I, I'm not actually where I got the book from but I met this guy who was with the American Peace Corps and he had a book uh, The Book of Happiness by the Dalai Lama and uh, so we swapped books I wasn't really keen on ecological terrorism I have to say because I've always been a pacifist <laughs> uh, so I got the, this book by the Dalai Lama and I started reading that and so I sort of... Um, I became quite interested in Buddhism. And of course, looking back, we're already seeing, of course, that, you know, uh, the Pythagoreanism was perhaps the same as Druidism, mm-hmm. now that we know. Um, and Pythagoreanism is very similar to Buddhism, which what Buddha was teaching at that time. So I felt as though I didn't deviate far. Uh, but uh, so I ordained as a Buddhist monk for a few years. I found it incredibly boring. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I'm not one for sitting silently, I have to say. It's not really my forty. Um, um, it hurts it, your back to sit in that position, oh, isn't it? <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes, yeah. And you get pins and needles in your legs. and it, 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 what, a way to, what a way to live. No, it wasn't really for me. But the interesting thing, of course, Tibetans are really, really superstitious. Mm-hmm. So... You know, there's some fascinating aspects of like uh, Buddhist teachings, um, obviously with reincarnation, um, but they're very, very superstitious. So I actually um, learnt some great pieces of Tibetan folklore, and one of my friends, who's this quite elderly Tibetan uh, man, I really want to sit him down, sit down with him at one time, and actually record all his tales of you know, like folk tales from Tibet and ghost stories and all the amazing stories of the Yeti. Mm-hmm. Because I, um, the, if um, 
let's let's talk about Tibetan folklore for a minute. Um, it's really very unexpected. <laughs> unexpected. Let's <do> it. <laughs> yes, let's do a bit of Tibetan folklore. There's um, there's a creature within um, European folklore called a wood woes. I don't know if you, it's just like a little hairy man, basically. Ooh. And they appear. They appear quite a lot in medieval art, and a lot of our cathedrals will have carvings of the green man, but yes. they'll also have carvings of the wood woes. So, actually, within Tibetan folklore, the yeti, I would suggest, is a wood woes. So, a wood woes is not just a a European creature of folklore that actually extends right the way to 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 Tibet. And so the the lowland yeti, if we're talking about the lowland yeti, is a wood woes. So it's a little short man covered in uh, ginger hair. So effectively, kind of like the cross between a human and a orangutan. And I think orangutan means pe- person of the man of the forest or something. And that's what it means. So I would suggest speaking to my uh, beloved Tibetan friend that uh, a yeti, a lowland yeti, is a wood woes. And there's tales of them about um, they're, they're not the most intelligent creatures, but do uh, do eat people. Oh, gosh. Um, his, apparently his parents, when they were in northern Tibet, uh, were uh, travelling through this village, and the villagers had caught two male yeti, but this is up in the high plateau, um, and his parents described him as Stone Age man, so more like you know, Neanderthal man, that type yeah. of thing, more human, more human features than the the lowland. So I would suggest there's two types of yeti. There's a creature that's a bit more like a wood woes, but uh, higher up, they're they're more human like. Mm-hmm. So, but I would like to get lots of um, his tales on record while he's still with us. Yes, yes. So sorry, I digress. Lately. Oh no worries. <laughs> um, let's um, bring us um, back to druidry. A druidry, bit. yes. Sorry, um, yes. Uh-huh. You yes. fashion yourself as a hedge druid, so yes. I would assume that is because you did your botany course then. Eh. Well, it's funny, yes, because you say hedge druid, and you think hedge. What? What hedge? Like a hedge witch. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, um, a hedge druid is someone who watched the druid path alone. So it's a solitary druid. Right. Um, it it means actually someone who rides the hedge. That's what it means. So someone who travels between this world and the other world. Uh-huh. The other the other world, an important place in druidry. You know, at certain times of the year, the veil between this world and the other world is its thinnest, and we can cross over. So at uh, Samhain, you know, modern Halloween and Beltane May Day festival, um, I suppose it's also. Um, I, I suppose I'm just not one for group activities. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if um. If you actually done the bard, overt, and druid um, levels, or you did you just do the bard? No, I just did the bard. The bard because right. I'd al- always identified myself as a you know, despite the fact obviously I've taken deviations through Sufism and Buddhism, etc. I think when I started reading about druidry, I thought 
Yeah, I'm a druid. I'm a druid. I mm. identified myself as a druid. Um, so it's actually been relatively recently uh, um, I did the, the bardic grade within Obod. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't feel I needed to progress any further. You know, there's, for me, I was quite happy sticking to the bardic grade. It's not, you know, the bardic grade's not an inferior part of druidism. It's just part of druidism. Mm-hmm. You know, I could do the Vate grade, but I think perhaps because of my background, my botanical background... You already have the, all that practice there. To, to a certain of, yeah. degree, yes. And within, you know, um, I don't think I necessarily need to do the druidic grade because my practice was more solitary. Um, you know, I understand the power of stone circles and I know that druids, um, although I would suggest that druids are more likely to be found in within a, an oak grove or a yew grove, mm. there are there is a kind of, like, druids now seem to be drawn to um, stone circles. Yeah. Um, actually, a stone has a higher psychic power than trees because of its age and in some cultures the um, stones are credited as being the homes of the spirits of the ancestors uh, you know but I celebrate I I don't find stone circles necessarily the place for me so I celebrate you know them the um, within nature within trees mm-hmm. etc uh, I've got there's two stands of oak trees near here that I that I tend to be found in, <laughs> for want of a better expression. And I've got a bit of woodland as well. So and uh, to pay my rent, I'm an organic gardener. So so I'm out in nature all the time. Oh, you know, yeah. like um, like twelve months of the year, no matter the weather, I'm I'm gardening. Yeah. And so I'm always out in nature. So. That's um, and I don't follow the the strict rigidity of right. Okay, it's the thirty first of October. Let's do that, whatever, because nature doesn't actually. Um, it does its own thing, you know. Um, so you see changes. You see the changes in the seasons. You know, for me, um, I noticed yesterday the lesser celandine had started to flower. And for me, that's a sign of spring, and all the little golden faces yeah. start appearing. Yeah. That's that's spring, you know. So, so um, so I follow nature. I follow how nature works, and not necessarily like um, want to hang around in stone circles. On specific dates, yeah. On specific dates, but also, I suppose I have a bit of a bean upon it about how, you know. For example, there's a stone circle up in Burkrig up here. Yes. And of course, at any given time, um, it's you know there's sheep on it, etc., etc. And you you're around the stone circle, and if invariably, you know, there's um, sheep excrement <laughs> surrounded it, and you're thinking, you know, what? But you wouldn't let a herd of cows into a church. Yeah. And of course, it's everywhere. Most of the stone circles around here are actually within within fields of livestock. Yeah. 
I don't know, it feels a bit sacrilegious. I know that's not the right word well, to there use. Is, there, but is, there, there are um, a lot of um, stone circles out there that are missing stones. Um, like the men and tall in Cornwall, for example, because they just took them to put them like, uh, as a mantelpiece above the fireplace. Um, mm-hmm. And um, like the Lenyon Quite, for example, fell down during a storm and um, they rebuilt it, but it doesn't... Supposedly, it doesn't look like it used to. Yeah, yeah. Um, but specifically, the men and tall, as I was saying, um, there are lots of accounts that, and I've seen it myself, just cows rubbing themselves on the rock. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, and so it ended up um, all getting some degree of degradation um, because of the unbridled um, farming and um, the the fields where those stone circles are end up being purchased by the farmers and yeah. they really don't know what, what's what's in there and the cow just let the cows and the yeah. sheep roam free. Yeah, I think you know um, we didn't exist as a society at the advent of Christianity. We existed as a society for thousands, hundreds of thousands. Millions of years, perhaps, and I think we could take better care of our historic monuments, uh, especially now that you know my parents are Church of Scotland. They go to church most Sundays, and they're well into their seventies. And my mum actually said that sometimes she feels she's probably one of the youngest people there. Oh, you know, so there's not, you know, like there's not a great demand, I would say, within society now. Although we're meant to be, an in inverted commas, a Christian country, I would suggest that's, you know, that's not, not accurate. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a move away from what I, which I would consider these young religions. There is a move away to actually to connect more with our with our past, you know, our our shamanic past. You know, a Celtic shamanism's not really much different than uh, Native American shamanism. Of course, I worked in Zambia, and it's not much different than African shamanism. It's not much different the, to Pythagoreanism. And yeah. actually, in there's facets of Pythagoreanism. There's actually not much difference to Buddhism. Yeah. Siberian shamanism. So we're all we're all linked. We're yeah. all very much linked. I have um, thought that myself. I mean, um, because I'm not from the UK, I've mm-hmm. noticed so many similarities between yeah. Portugal and the UK, yes. especially yeah. like uh, old Celtic um, sites in Portugal. We also have stone of circles, course, of course, and it's yeah. only when you travel that you realize, oh, hold on a minute, we are actually a lot alike everywhere in the world but if you remain static in just Mm -hmm. one location all your life that's when you start to think oh we're so different but it's 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 not like that at all we're not at all there's actually very little difference yeah we didn't just suddenly hatch 2000 well, less than well, it's like the Yeti. The Yeti seems to be a um, a migrant. He migrated. Yeah, the migrant. <laughs> yes, he, the, the wood boys. He's everywhere. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We've all got. Well, there is the story of the Cumbrian Yeti. The big foot, big foot in in the United States as well. Yeah, similar yeah, to the uh-huh, Yeti. Yes, my. Uh, um, I had dinner one night uh, down in Surrey uh, with a group of friends and. Uh, one of the women there, her 
boyfriend was American and he actually told the story of actually meeting a Yeti when he was a child and apparently lived um, the edge of this great forest, it was Colorado, I can't remember, my geography of America is not great I have to say. His uh, father was uh, worked in like the national parks, so they they were very kind of very rural place. And he actually said he went out one day with his younger brother. He was about say about ten or twelve at the time, and they met a yeti, big giant hairy mm. man. And he said his brother was scared stiff by the encounter, really petrified, but he was okay. And although the yeti never spoke. He felt almost there was a, a psychic connection. And as it turned out, the way that he was recounting the story was that over the course of this summer, he'd go into the woods and he'd meet a yeti and he'd meet um, the, um, other yeti, you know, groups of yeti. I don't know what a collective group of yeti are called. <laughs> but, um, a murder of yetis. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think so, actually. Um, I... And eventually told his dad, and he said, oh, I've been into the woods and I've been meeting Yeti. So it's, uh, the father set up um, um, recording devices outside and certainly they the, the, the recorded these interesting noises that he sent to local university and they analysed it and no, we're not really sure what this is, etc. So the local university, it apparently was in all the newspapers of the time, so there is evidence of this thing. But apparently the local university sent sent out this expedition to go out and he was leading the expedition. And he said at one point, he said, I noticed that some of the people had guns. And he said, I knew if I went right, I would see a yeti. He said, so I took them to the left. And we didn't see any yeti. Mm. And there's a lot more to the story than that. But he'd said that the, the, there was never... They never spoke, the Yeti never spoke, and he never spoke to the Yeti, but it was almost like a psychic connection. Interesting. And one night there was a there was a storm and there was strange lights in the sky and he said he remembers turning around to his dad and saying, They've gone now, they've gone home. So that's <laughs> that's his story about Yetis. That's his story about Yetis or Wood Woes and there's the Yeti story in Cumbria as well. Some guy walking his dog apparently saw this Yeti. Um, uh, drinking from a pool of water. Goodness. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so speaking about Cumbria and yes. uh, going back to the druids as well. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. I keep deviating. I do no apologize. Yeah. Um, so, what places here in Cumbria can we find evidence? And I say evidence <laughs> <laughs> um, of ancient druidic practice. Oh gosh. Um, I'm not sure there are any. So the stone circle in Keswick or the stone circle here in 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 um, and even the, the town called Barnsea, is that anything to do with druids at all? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> well, Archaeologists and historians would suggest that many stone circles were actually uh, built before the Celts yeah, well, came yeah. to Britain. So if the Celts, um, the Celts and the Druids were the same thing, the stone circles were already here. Mm. For me, that just doesn't make sense. I have to say, 
like um, possibly being reused because I'd say that probably today some people might go up to a burk rig and use it. Uh, I've never seen anyone there, but I would. All oh, right, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I go I go there. Um, I actually <laughs> there's a there used to be a very old hawthorn tree growing. It's on the wall mm. uh, growing. It was the the hawthorn tree that was nearest the stone circle, and for decades and decades it specific festivals people would go and put offerings on it you know in scotland we have called a clouty tree yes so it's a tree and it's generally growing beside a spring and mm-hmm. of course you would you would um tie bits of fabric onto it and make a wish so this hawthorn tree had almost become like a clouty tree uh, and it it fell down perhaps a decade ago and a smaller one's grown up perhaps it's offspring so occasionally when I'm passing, I'll maybe um, tie, I always carry a handkerchief. So I've got lots of handkerchiefs with bits torn off them. <laughs> you know, because obviously I wouldn't want to tie anything made of plastic or anything onto a tree. So I, I invariably uh, tie uh, uh, rip a strip off my handkerchief and tie my handkerchief to the branches of the tree. Um, so like I say, most of my handkerchiefs are, are sort of get smaller and smaller and smaller as the years go by. Um, the Dru- it's called the Druid Circle or the Sun Brick Circle, mm-hmm. but apparently it was like rebuilt about Victorian times. Mm. Um, there there are a few uh, holy wells around the area. Um, uh, one at Colton, Colton. That don't ask me to explain where it is. It's quite close to here. You sort of go to Greenodd. No, I do know where it is. Oh, you do, right? Yeah. Yes. I just all you know, you go to Greenodd and turn right, and you go up a hill. Mm. But it does have a druid's well, mm. um, and also at Dalton, Dalton and Furness. Dalton, yeah. There is actually um, there's the remains of a druid's well, and uh, but. Uh, I've got a picture of what it used to be like, and it was ab- absolutely beautiful with stone, etc., etc. And it was a healing well, and people would come. And of course, when Furness Abbey was in its yes. heyday, pilgrims would come and bathe in it, etc. But apparently, the farmer got uh, annoyed by the people in his field, and he he basically bulldozed it. Gosh. So there's a few bits of sandstone scattered around, and a small trickle of water still comes out of it. But you sort of, you've got to cross a railway line. So you've got to phone, say, excuse me, are there any trains due within the next few minutes? So you phone and then you cross over the railway line and you kind of sneak up the farmer's field and you sort of look at this puddle and you think, oh my goodness. And then you look at the pictures, what it was like and the significance it had in the areas being in this healing well. Mm. And you feel it's like just this... Uh, appalling act of vandalism so I suppose round about here there perhaps are two holy wells in inverted commas that are associated with the druids the druid circle in Burkrig there's a lot more to it there are actually other ditches and there are outer stones etc etc but I think it's just called the druid circle because in Victorian times there was an interest in druidism again and um, I think uh, anything was called the Druid's Well, the Druid's Circle, etc. So, evidence that I know of, I couldn't really say for definite, but those are those are three examples anyway. Mm-hmm. So. 
So would you say that folklorists and storytellers are the modern-day versions of bards and druids? No. (laughs) Well, bards are part of druidism. So, like I said, they're the keepers of tradition, of memory, custodians of the sacredness of the word, with a capital W. Um, And as one is trained to exist within the bardic grade of druidry. So, folklorists and storytellers have a part to play within society because they're they're telling us folklore, folk tales, etc. But it's, uh, with with regards, bards and druidry, it's an entirely separate entity. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, so... I would say, for example, mm-hmm. that their their objective would be more to move away from the crowd, whereas folklorists and storytellers need the crowd. Yes, folklorists and storytellers need the crowd. Bards are the are a custodian of tradition, and don't ne- yes don't necessarily like need or want a crowd. Mm-hmm. They're like I say, you know, for myself, um, obviously I'm a folklorist and storyteller. But you're also a hedge druid. But I'm also a hedge druid. I'm a, I'm a bard. Eh, and within like, my hedge druidry and my 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 bardism, which is not a word, I've just made that up, <laughs> um, for for me it's actually understanding what druidry is. And, um, and I, I suppose I'll never truly understand it because I wasn't there at at the time, really at the time of Druidry, but um, I want to understand Druidism as much as possible. Um, And that's, for me, it's just being at one with nature, you Mm. know, being the custodian of my own little part of Cumbria. Mm. Um, Right. Uh, Would you like to recommend any books or films about Druidry? Oh, I was actually going to tell you a story. I was going to tell you a Druid story. Oh, let's hear that first then. Right. I've probably talked far too long. Uh, so this is about this is the world tree. Sorry, in my my Scottish accent, I tend to roll my R's, <laughs> so it's not it's the the world tree. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the world tree and how it connects to the other world. So the other world being the world of the gods, the world of the dead. So this is a story courtesy of Joanna Vanderhoen. And I do apologise if I've misspelt her name, but she writes an amazing book. Uh, she writes about hedge druidry. She's a hedge druid. Mm-hmm. And uh, her books in hedge druidry are fantastic. So this is a story courtesy And of we're her. recommending her book then. <laughs> I'm recommending her book, yes. Um, so it's uh, from the Irish tales of Fionn McCummel. Mm. Uh, he comes upon the man in the tree. So, the man in the tree. So, this man has a blackbird on his right shoulder. Interestingly, the blackbird is considered one of the oldest animals on earth. So, he has a blackbird on his right shoulder. Uh, on, in his left hand, he holds a bowl of water in which a trout is swimming. At the base of the tree stands a mighty stag. 
cracking nuts, the man in the tree would give half to the blackbird, half for himself. From the bowl he produced an apple, half for the deer, half for himself. He would drink from the bowl so that he, the trout, the blackbird and the stag could all drink together. So here we see the three parts of the outer world together through the symbolism of the man in the tree. The blackbird symbolises the upper world, the stag the middle world and the fish the lower world. So that's my little druid story for you. <laughs> uh, and would you like to recommend uh, more books beside Joanna van der Holmes? <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm getting commission or anything. I don't know the woman, honestly. Oh, I, I just think that... I do follow her on Twitter. <laughs> yes, I've got some over here, actually. So Joanna's book is The Book of Hedge Druidry. Mm-hmm. I can hardly recommend that. Uh, the book I spoke of earlier, uh, Singing with Blackbirds, by Stuart Harrison, Lo- uh, sorry, Stuart Harris Logan, mm. um, and that's the one you know where he, he's um, he's been dissecting Gaelic songs, yes. looking for, for for connections with druidry. Yes, so of course the the um, Ross Nichols' fav- uh, famous book, The Book of Druidry. Mm-hmm. My first book that started all this, The Celtic Shaman by John Matthews, and probably any at all book on Druids. Philip Cargon, there, yes, yeah. Yeah. And that these are probably I do have lots of other books on Druidry that yeah. um but I think these are probably my main ones actually, the ones I sort of read and then I dip into other books as well. So, um, uh, but I read a uh, what? Well, of course, I mentioned earlier um, Graham Hancock, you know, about civilization. So that's um, uh, fingerprints of the gods, and uh, he's got another book called Supernatural, and I haven't read it yet. It's quite large. I just haven't got quite got into it. And then, of course, Michael Cremo, who's amazing. You know his book Forbidden Archaeology, mm-hmm. and he look, it. and if he looks um, within scientific papers, not actually published books, but he looks at scientific papers, archaeologists who have discovered things in the field that go against any archaeological, the mainstream archaeology, so evidence that suggests that man has existed for millions of years mm-hmm. and he's not just part of the evolutionary process etc you know so so those are sort of my books that I read my thanks to Stephen for giving this interview and to Joanna for meeting up with him to record it Stephen told a few other stories from Cumbria and Ayrshire during the interview and these can be found on our Patreon page for supporters at all levels to listen to please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast to access them or to sign up. As well as Patreon, you can also give one-off donations through our online store. Many thanks to those that have recently. It is your support alone which keeps the podcast commercial-free and covers the costs which allow the show to keep being made. 
and especially at the moment where the picture of working in the creative industries has changed dramatically. Supporters are ensuring that the podcast does not have to close down altogether. Thanks to all of you who do support us, both in that way and on Patreon. On the next episode of the Folklore Podcast, I'll be talking to buildings archaeologist James Wright about medieval graffiti and the ritual marking of buildings for protection, from castles to domestic dwellings. In the meantime, we finish today with a final story from Stephen G. Ray, the Bard of Cumberland. Thanks for listening, stay safe, enjoy our additional bonus content, and see you next time. So the Boggarts, they spoke about the Boggarts. Yeah, did mention And the of Boggart. course the Boggarts actually exist within um, Ayrshire folklore as well. Yeah. So the Boggart in English folklore is either a household spirit or a malevolent spirit inhabiting fields, marshes or other topographical features. Mm. Other names are Bogey, Bogey, Bogginman, Boggle or Dobby. The household form causes mischief and things disappear. Milk sours and dogs go lame. It may even sneak into your bed at night and squeeze your toes. Boggers will follow its family wherever they flee, but apparently hanging a horseshoe on the door of a house or leaving a pile of salt outside your bedroom will keep the boggers away. Uh, the boggarts inhabiting marshes or holes in the grounds are attributed to more serious evil doing, such as the abduction of children. So uh, the recorded folklore of boggarts they're extremely varied. So and in their appearance and their size, many are described as relatively human-like in form, usually rather uncouth and ugly, uh, but also they can take the form of an animal. Mm. So this is, this is the tale of the mitre-tailed boggle. A young wife and her child were left at the farm in the Mitredale Valley while the husband has business in Whitehaven. At dusk, an old woman, her head wrapped in a shawl, asked for lodging. The stranger was made very welcome by the wife and she sat down at the fireside. As the stranger fell asleep, the shawl slipped revealing not an old woman, but an odd-looking small man carrying a fearsome knife. The wife, terrified, lifted a heavy pan full of boiling mutton fat from the fire and struck the strange man. Early next day, the farmer returned to a distraught wife and a ghastly corpse. They buried the body and kept silent about it but the valley has been haunted ever since.